Welcome to the 2021 podcast series of the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. I'm Breda Brown and our theme today is From Lockdowns to Vaccines. Where are we with COVID? Our first guest is Professor Brian Hughes of the Psychological Society of Ireland and Professor of Psychology at NUI Galway. Brian is a specialist in stress psychophysiology, health psychology, the public understanding of psychology and science and the psychology of social issues. He blogs at thesciencebit.net. We're also joined by Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Luke has been one of the leading scientific voices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and his book is called Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science. Brian, firstly, we'll go to you and I suppose over the past 12 months, you know, we're, we're really into this pandemic now. But what have we learned in that time frame about ourselves from the point of view of psychology? Yes, indeed. It's been a, a long year in one sense and a short year in another sense. But I think we've learned essentially a few things about ourselves, maybe four things in particular I would pick out. Um, one is that we're far more resilient than maybe we had realized. Um, the vast majority of people have complied with what has been put upon them and have coped and have survived. Um, secondly, we're far more adaptable than perhaps we realized. Uh, a year ago, very few people knew what Zoom was. Now we use Zoom every day. People wear masks, they maintain physical distancing, they work from home, they do all of these things that have changed their lives and have got on with it. But the, the third thing is that even though people are adaptable and resilient, they're not indestructible. And we've had uh, the limits have been reached for a lot of people in terms of mental health and youth mental health in particular, child mental health, loneliness, educational attainment. And I think the most overriding thing we've learned is how our social challenges are interconnected. They're largely behavioral, attitudinal, perceptual, and none of us acts or behaves in isolation. The problems of loneliness, of social cohesion, um, and, and educational attainment, special needs support, all of these challenges, low paid workers, they need a coordinated response, active response. They don't, they aren't problems that solve themselves, but they are problems that affect everybody. And has public policy followed the science of human behaviour then over the past year? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about uh, following the science, and I suppose it means different things to different people. And my own sense is that it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, every time a lockdown level five or equivalent has been introduced, it has certainly been successful in terms of reducing the numbers. Um, But whether um, we have really owned that, whether we have really sort of uh, understood why we are doing a lot of the things that we are being asked to do is another matter. And each time we have uh, withdrawn the lockdown or opened up uh, society, there there has been a sense that scientific voices have not necessarily won the day. Now, we had a lot of um, talk about um, uh, NEFIT over the course of the year. But I think for me, a big turning point was the beginning of October when the chief medical officer returned from personal leave and, and, and wrote a letter to the government saying that the whole country needed to go to level five straight away. Uh, it caught a lot of people by surprise. And I, as a citizen, uh, thought that this was just going to happen because this was the scientific advice. It was clear. But over the course of the day, the entire political spectrum poured cold water on the idea. And we didn't follow the science on that occasion. The cabinet said that they wouldn't follow the science, that they would make up their own mind. And they chose level three instead of level five. 
the numbers went up, up and up. And two weeks later, we had to go to level five anyway. But I think since that moment onwards, we have, we have lived in a society that's different to the one I thought we lived in, because now there seems to be a resistance to implementing science. There seems to be a, a, an idea that science goes in the balance and other considerations can win the day more often than not, if necessary. And Luke, do you think the government should be following the science more? Oh, for definite, but yeah. But but the trouble is, there's things we don't know is the problem. If, if the science was definitive, you'd know what to do. You know, you could say, look, the science says this, we must do that. And there is, we know a lot about the virus, obviously, and how it transmits and various things. But what we don't know, for instance, is, and, and Brian has kind of touched on it, the consequences of lockdown on other things. That's still a bit of an unknown. In other words, we could be opening ourselves up to massive long-term damage through lockdown, nothing to do with COVID, you know. So the government's trying to balance these various things without necessarily having the data. So, I, I mean, I agree with Brian up to a point in the sense that they have dithered a bit in the science, but it's a tough job for them. I've got a certain amount of sympathy for them, to be honest, because sometimes there's no easy answer to these things you see. There's no definitive thing to do sometimes. And, and overall, remember, we've done a good job in Ireland. I mean, we're in the top four in the league table of keeping our citizens alive, for instance. People forget this compared to other countries. That's really good, you know. So it isn't too bad here. Uh, I think we're coming into a critical phase now, though when they have to follow the science in the next few months, let's put it that way. Otherwise, we will have all kinds of in and outs of lockdown and various issues with, with emerge. So now they're on the ropes, watch, read it in the next week or two. I'm waiting to see what the next uh, inflection point's going to be on the 5th of April. And I'm hoping they're going to go for what we call harm reduction. So, and I'll give you a brief, I know I'm rabbiting on here, but I'll give you a brief thing on this. So the HIV pandemic, and I worked on HIV a bit back in the 80s as an immunologist. When that broke out, they knew the science told them it's a bloodborne disease, right? And that's where it came from, blood exchange. And then they knew they had to be careful with blood. And they knew sex was one risk here, among many, by the way, blood transfusion, another obvious one. And they advocated abstinence. Now that worked for about a month. And then people got fed up and, and the dreaded phrase pandemic fatigue set in. And they said, to hell with this, I want to live my life, right? And then they moved from, from um, abstinence to harm reduction. And what that meant was safe sex, condoms, and that worked a bit, you know. We need to move into harm reduction now, I think. Otherwise, we're going to be in big trouble. And again, the science of HIV and the response that I should inform that discussion, you know. And I think people have been asked recently to do more. However, it seems like the public are nearly actually doing less because of that fatigue. So in terms of that, Brian, I mean, again, within the next couple of weeks, what messages do you think that the government need to get out there to try and help from a psychological perspective uh, the, the, the public? Well, I think you're right. I think uh, people have done an awful lot. I mean, and there is a, a thing of behavioural fatigue in a lockdown crisis, a lockdown situation. This has been studied before COVID. Um, uh, at one stage, we had scientific advisors said there is no such thing as behavioural fatigue. But uh, um, uh, to some extent, the horse has bolted. But I think it would be a lot better to involve people and empower people and uh, support people in adhering to the to the various guidelines. My own sense is that there has been too much emphasis on rules and on specifics. Um, you know, 15 minutes of contact was, was the thing at one stage. And and people try to go to 14 minutes and move on. They try to, they don't necessarily grasp what the rule is trying to do. The two meter social distancing is another one. 1.9 meters would be okay. And so on. Um, uh, a greater understanding and communicating and reasoning why these policies are being implemented is hugely important in empowering people to adhere to guidelines. Because if there's no if there's no understanding, there's no there's no compliance. But I don't think we should overstate the fatigue factor. 
I think it's a separate problem to people who are disadvantaged by digital divides in the work from home or educate from home context. I think that is a crisis that needs to be addressed by supplying people with the opportunities to work from home or to be educated from home. I think by and large, people have adhered and will adhere more. Every single time that a survey is done, two thirds of the population are saying that the current regulations are either correct or not tight enough. They want to succeed in this. They want to protect society. And they have a sense, and they're right in my opinion, that if the government did more by way of, say, quarantining visitors and so on and preventing the seeding of the population um, with COVID cases, that would do more in the long run than asking people who are already doing the best they can to do a little bit more. And Luke, obviously we know the vaccine is, is on the way. It's obviously rolling out at the moment. But how do you think the communication around that has been? It hasn't been too bad. Right? I mean, I mean, remember, it's all about the data. I keep, we all keep saying that, don't we? And the data around the vaccines is spectacular, which is superb. So we can depend on that. And that, that's where you come to the idea of depending on science, because science is about the truth, ultimately. And that data is great. And that information came out very quickly. You may We all remember November when Pfizer announced their success, 95% efficacy. We were all delighted with ourselves, weren't we? And that was good messaging, you see. And then it hasn't been bad. I mean, we've had a terrible mess with AstraZeneca. That's been a very disappointing thing. And and I, I, I spoke out about this last week. They shouldn't have paused that vaccine. That was a huge mistake to do that, for instance. They weren't following the science there, actually. There's one example where they ignored the science, you know? So that's bad. That, that, that unnerves people. Mm. We might be lucky. I mean, maybe it won't give rise to a huge amount of vaccine hesitancy. But I think around Europe, we're seeing that because of this messing with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And that means lives will be lost, you see. So so I think they need to be very careful. And for some reason, whoever advises them sometimes gets it wrong, I suppose. But it's something they must be really sort of cognizant of is the messaging around vaccines, because it is a major way out is the vaccination campaign. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. I think I think vaccine hesitancy is not a major problem in Ireland or indeed the UK. Um, the YouGov tracker says 89% of people intend to take the vaccine in the UK. But it clearly does arise. And when it arises, it's very troubling. So in, in France, only 40% of people say they're going to take, the, to take the vaccine. And in Germany, it's only about 60%. Um, in the United States, half of people who voted for Donald Trump said they will never take a vaccine. And a lot of these are cultural concerns. There are a lot of scandals in, 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 in um, political uh, contexts in France that have given rise to a general distrust of vaccination programs. Um, and there's an, a different, um, across the border in Germany, there's a different narrative about organic and, 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 and anti-kind of this scientific skepticism at a kind of corporate level, or highly educated people are skeptical towards vaccines. So things can tip. Um, and a lot of it is reliant on perception. I think we've done a very good job in Ireland in communicating confidence around vaccines. Um, maybe ironically, uh, the, 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 the shortages and the, the, the hiccups in the, in, in, the, in the delivery of vaccination creates this sense of urgency around it. People are saying, why, why can't I get my vaccine? And they have something to be angry about, but it's actually good anger because it is encouraging uh, uptake rather than discouraging it. And Luke, obviously some people have got the vaccine here at the moment, but a lot haven't. So those who have got it, you know, should they be be worried um, because they're waiting on everybody else to get vaccinated or or how should they be thinking at the moment? No, no, they should be. They should be joyous is the word. I mean, <laughs> what we know is if you're vaccinated, the two doses, remember, you got to go for the second dose that really builds up the immune response. Your your risk of getting really sick and ending up in hospital and dying is uh, is zero. That's what the trials have shown, you know. 
you, you're 100% decrease in risk of severe disease and hospitalization for all the vaccines. And that's you as a vaccinated person. So you should be re- very happy that you've got your suit of armor on now effectively, you know? What we're hoping for now is that you won't transmit the virus. That's our next question. Now, there's some evidence that that's the case, that vaccination prevents onward transmission. That's great because the more we vaccinate, the lower the virus will be in the community and it begins to go away, you know. So now I think people who are vaccinated should pat themselves on the back and, uh, and look forward to returning. I mean, the next big debate we'll have is what does it mean to be vaccinated? I've no doubt at all they should issue strict, uh, clear guidelines on that rather. Two people who've been vaccinated should be allowed to meet and behave normally, you know. And the CDC did this about two weeks ago. If you're vaccinated, let's say you're a grandmother, you should go and meet your granddaughter and, and your, your, your own daughter if they're not in the vulnerable group and they're not vaccinated because the risk of them getting infected is very low and getting sick, you see. So we're going to see these guidelines. And I think they need to, I'm sure Brian would agree, the sooner we get clarity on that, the better, because then people will know, oh, this vaccine is worth something, you know, and that would encourage others to become vaccinated as well. Yes, and I, I, I think, the again, the understanding piece is important because when we started all this lockdown adjustment, it was perceived, we, we thought it was just going to be a few weeks. And so we didn't need necessarily that much information. We just knew what to, needed to know what to do. But now we're so far into it that people uh, really need to understand what's going on. In other words, uh, uh, to, to, to stick with it. I think the, the information about how the rate of risk of side effects and so forth with vaccines is important and is informative. It is extremely, extremely low, as, as Luke has just outlined. For all vaccines, it is interesting to actually just look at some figures. I mean, the chance of a life-threatening side effect with the vaccine is literally one in a million or one in two million, according to some authorities. The chance of a life-threatening side effect with a course of antibiotics is, is about one in 10,000 per course which makes it a hundred times more dangerous. And yet around the world, we see people over-prescribing antibiotics because there's a demand for that, but they're skeptical of vaccines because there's a kind of a rumor about vaccines being dangerous. The numbers don't tally with that, but the more people see the numbers, understand the numbers and think about the numbers, I think the better people will be prepared to actually do the right thing. And then politicians can have confidence in implementing sensible policies because they know they'll be supported. And, and Luke, on that, when are we likely to reach a high enough percentage of the vaccine so that we can return to, to some sort of normality? You know, there's an important point here, but I mean, we, to re- reach herd immunity is very difficult. That's way in the future. And it's less important, actually, to be honest. The next milestone you want to get to is uh, vaccinating the vulnerable and the elderly. And then we, we will immediately see a decrease in the death rate and hospitalisation rate. And then this disease becomes like any other and, and we need to be frightened of it, you know. And that should begin to happen. It's happening in Israel already. Great data there in the last couple of days, actually. 85% decrease in death rate. So that, that means these vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do. I reckon by sort of June, July time in Ireland, if, if everything goes according to plan with all the usual caveats about supply and so on, we should be in a similar position. Now, that will mean then two things. The, the people need be, need be less fearful, which is tremendous for them. And then secondly, the government can be less fearful and can begin to relax some of the restrictions that we have because of the uh, the efficacy of the vaccine in that context. And the it'll economy can start opening up, obviously. But it'll, it'll take years to get to herd immunity. That, that needs 80% of the population. And that means young people and children and everything, you know. So I wouldn't worry about that. That's, that's, that's another day's work, you know. But let's get to the first fence, if you like, on the journey. And that, that's just protecting the vulnerable and the elderly. When do you think we'll get to a proper single dose of the vaccine as opposed to needing the two? 
Yes, well, Johnson and Johnson, right? that, that is a single shot, which seems to be a very efficacious but one shot. You know, there's evidence that Pfizer actually a single shot gets you probably 85% protection anyway. And the second shot brings it up to 95. So, and then remember, I mean, it's, it's an amazing vista ahead of us. There's about seven vaccines coming down the track and they will be approved in the coming months. Watch. Several of those are single shot vaccines. They're also working against the variants, which is our next concern, of course. These newer vaccines that are developing, there's a French one, for instance, that should work against any variant, you know? So, so the vista for the vaccine campaign, if you will, is looking very positive. Will it be a case then that we're going to need the vaccination every year like we do with the flu jab? Probably, yeah. I mean, that's a work in progress. If we're lucky, you mightn't. And there's some evidence of enduring immunity going on for months. And remember, the current vaccines we have work, work against all the variants, really. Now, what I mean by that is they will decrease severe disease you still might get infected and have some symptoms, but you should be okay. So if that's the case, and the vaccines persist and give you immunity for, say, one, two, three years, which is still a possibility, and you won't need a vaccine every winter. But the sensible view would be we need to get the vaccines ready for the variants anyway and prepare people for booster shots in the winter, just like the flu. It, it could become that way, or if we're lucky, it'll be less frequent repeat vaccination. You know? Brian, Luke is obviously being quite positive there. So it means that, you know, things will happen, but we don't have an end point or we don't really have a timeline. So in terms of trying to psychologically deal with all of this, what advice would you have for everybody at the moment? Yes, I think we need to pace ourselves. Um, I think vaccines are our way out of the um, uh, pandemic. I'm I'm not a a microbiologist or an immunologist, but I know that much. Um, But as a behavioural scientist, I would be conscious of the fact that that doesn't mean we get out straight away. So we need to stick with things and we need to have confidence uh, that there will be uh, a post-COVID uh, future. But we, we, we shouldn't rush. I mean, the mistake we've made in the past is rushing things. And, um, and uh, in, in that way, then getting ourselves into more bother. I mean, it is fantastic that people are, are being vaccinated as we speak. Um, we are targeting the most vulnerable people in the population, which is quite right and quite sensible and quite humane. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're targeting the people most likely to transmit uh, the virus. So there's still going to be a spread of contagion. And and many people who are not in vulnerable categories still get seriously ill um, with with this illness. So the last thing we should do is lose control of the spread of the virus in the middle of a vaccination program. I mean, that would be that would be very unfortunate. So there's no miracle cure. I was listening to media reports earlier about people going on foreign holidays from June onwards. I don't think we should be talking about that at all. I think we should be uh, keeping it steady, keeping it slow, but knowing that we will get there if we keep doing what we're doing. And Luke, what advice would you have for the government at the moment? Well, I'd sort of Brian would know more about this than me, but what people need is a clear roadmap. I mean, what makes people most anxious is uncertainty, as we know, right? So, so if I was the government now, now is the time. And let's hope they do it. I'm on my knees begging them in a sense, really. Let's look at the roadmap. The Brits have done, if I'm calling the, Brit, the British people, have done a good job, actually. Their roadmap is very sensible. They've got, they got, they've got criteria. They've got dates. They're going to examine against those criteria. That's really good messaging for the, for any, for, for the, for the public because they now know at least someone's in charge, first of all. And then we treat people like adults because they, they can look at that themselves and say, oh, this looks sensible to me, and then they buy into it more, you know? So I think we desperately need a really clear roadmap out of this now in the coming six to nine months, because as Brian correctly says, there's a, there's a really, relatively long road ahead of us. It's going to take months and months. you got to prepare people for that. But the fear we have is we get to September, and we've had a great summer, say, and now it begins to come back, and suddenly another winter we're facing into. We know this virus loves the winter. It spreads, as we saw ourselves in December,
like wildfire in, indoors, you know. So that, that'd be a really uh, disturbing prospect, yet yeah, another lockdown next winter, can you imagine? So the government have to have that as, as, as absolutely in their sights that we can't be in that position when we get to September. And this is how we're going to make sure we're not in that position. And then people buy into it. My biggest fear, and I'd love to hear Brian's opinion on this, to be honest, because I've read a bit about pandemic fatigue and so on with Ebola outbreaks, for example. Pandemic fatigue actually means like a compliance as well. So people say, feck this for a game of soldiers, if we use that phrase. And then they begin doing dangerous things, if you will. You know, it's not just people getting fed up and stuck in the house. The fatigue sounds just like that, but it's also about lack of compliance. So one of my fears now is that will exhibit itself in a lack of compliance, which will keep the virus burning away from us, you know, and then the risk of it coming back. So, so this phase of, of messaging, you might call it, and the plan is really important at the moment. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, um, that is the big consequence of, of of behavioral fatigue is that people stop uh, adhering, and I think you get this very delicate messaging around uh, what will and won't happen. I agree, we need certainty, uh, but we need to have some flexibility in mind as well. We need to have some scenarios planned. What happens if this arises? What happens if that arises? And you give people the kind of full gamut of of of, of possibilities, because what you can have is a single pathway model is you, 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 you miss a target and suddenly the whole pathway is, 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 is um, under a cloud and people give up on that basis as well. You have this kind of abstinence violation effect where the absolute outcome hasn't happened and therefore everything falls apart. So if we give people the scenarios and the dates and so forth, but we tell them some if-then scenarios, if we have this, we will have a certain type of lockdown. If we have that, we won't. Um, we'll have a different type of approach. We'll have certain type size gatherings and so on get into as much detail as possible, explain the science behind it, because I do believe most people are quite hungry for that information, are quite happy uh, to act on it sensibly. And that limits the fatigue factor of, of, of non-compliance, uh, which often happens when, when, when a plan disappears before your eyes. So hold tight, essentially, and pat ourselves on the back as well for how well we've done so far, but just to keep yeah, going. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, Brad. And the other thing I'd say is... Um, the great joy of science actually is it gives us comfort in a very general sense. I mean, scientists are always agitating trying to solve a puzzle effectively. And when they get an answer, they feel happier. You know, yeah. this is what's happening here in a way. So if you say to someone, like, I'm going to give you science now to explain why I want to do this and why I'm coming to this conclusion, it gives them comfort. And that's what this is about, actually, and confidence. So, so it's really important to keep, keep a focus on that as well. Absolutely. And, and, and in addition, there's, there's a science around human behavior. It's not just um, yeah. uh, microbes and, and viruses and so on. There's a science around how people react to stress, how people make decisions under pressure, uh, what people think of, of numbers even, and how people comprehend uh, base rates and probabilities. All of that is understood by, by science. And it's good for us to know uh, the limits of our ability to reason in a hurry and so on, and why we need to uh, apply more information to problems. In many ways, Peter, we're in the middle of a big... Us scientists love this. I hate to say it sounds like we're, we're making the most of a bad job. But I'm sure Brian would agree that there's great science going on at the moment. Yeah. So we're learning more about human psychology in spades, I imagine. And we're also learning about the immune system in spades and viruses. All this new knowledge is accumulating because of COVID. And of course, the beauty of this will be we'll be ready, I hate to say it, for the next one. You know? In other words... This information is going to be extremely useful in the future when we get outside this current period. You know, so let's remind people of this. I mean, the research in my lab, for example, we're working on COVID. Now, I work on the therapeutic side, you know, trying to develop new anti-inflammatories. Now, if COVID is cracked, someone says to me, oh, you've wasted your time. No, I haven't. I'll be able to use those anti-inflammatories in a different disease. You know, I'll learn more about the lungs and inflammation there through that, you know. So again, I think we're going to see lots of interesting information emerging from this period that would go beyond COVID. 
Yes, that's right. Our experience of this pandemic behaviorally in terms of lockdowns and masks and distancing and, and, and homeschooling and all a lot of it, it prepares us for the next uh, the next pandemic because there inevitably will be one. You can see this whole experience as a kind of inoculation against future behavioral fatigue or pandemic fatigue. Well, hopefully it won't be for a long time. Fingers crossed. My thanks to Professor Brian Hughes of the Psychological Society of Ireland and NUI Galway and immunologist Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin. That was the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast. If you want any more information, you can check out the website www.psychologicalsociety.ie. We'll see you next time.